True Spirituality, Part 10, Psychological Healing. Having looked into our thought lives in Part 9, we will now examine what Christianity has to say in regard to the various psychological challenges we all experience from time to time. This involves addressing some rather complex concepts that may sound a bit technical or even foreign to most hearing these ideas for the first time. However, the payoff is a deeper understanding of the unparalleled explanatory power of the Christian belief system in terms of how it not only accounts for all aspects of the human situation, but provides livable answers to the most profound questions a person can ask. After all, Christianity is more than just a set of belief propositions to accept as truth, but the animating principles for how to live in all dimensions of what it is to be a human being. We are persons made in the image of a thinking, acting, feeling God. Though I can think of my parts in various ways, physical body, soul, or spirit, I am a unit, a single being. It is right to think of a division of myself consisting of intellect, will, and emotions, since these are observable, in a sense, and experiential. But the biblical concept of a human being is that we are not just a sum of the parts, but a whole. That's where our thinking should start. There is a me who is neither just an assembly of isolated parts or just a flow of consciousness. Anything that undermines and damages that unity is destructive of the very basic thing that a person is and needs to be in light of bearing God's image. This idea points to sin as something far beyond just a forensic element or legal matter in regard to my guilt before a holy God. It has to do with the truth of what I am as one made in his image. The first aspect that comes into focus has to do with being, questions of my very existence. Regardless of one's philosophy, whether of a spiritual nature or something purely naturalistic, as in the universe, as but a closed system with nothing beyond, the most basic thing about a person is that he or she exists. No matter his philosophy, he exists as a thinking, feeling person this is inescapable, and it becomes a dilemma for the naturalist. We'll touch on the reasons why shortly. Secondly, there is the issue of what a person is in the circle of his existence. If I am made in God's image, I exist, and he exists. But what is the difference between the circle of my existence and that of his? And what am I in comparison with other life forms or even non-conscious living things or materials? So now we have bare existence and then differentiations of myself from God on one side and the animals, plants, and materials on the other. When considering the existence of differentiated things in the universe, there is no rational answer without the personal creator God of the Bible. I'll say even more directly that there is no rational answer to being without an infinite reference point, an uncaused causer of a personal nature. The God of the Bible is not just infinite, no beginning, uncaused, timeless, not bound by spatial limitations, all-powerful, but is personal. 
God being personal is the ground for a human being having personhood, agency expressed in having a will, desires, and other capacities such as knowing that includes being able to discern truth. The only logical position that a naturalist can hold is that he must live consciously but silently in a sort of cocoon of his own being without knowing anything for sure outside of himself. That is the implication of pure naturalism. To be rationally and intellectually consistent, this person must admit that he knows he is there but cannot make the first move out of that cocoon of his own being. This is where we can get into issues that emerge in discussions of free will and determinism in light of the belief that everything in the universe, including our experience as thinking, feeling beings, is reduced to matter and the regularities we refer to in the science literature as laws operating within the universe. So the naturalist, convinced that there is no self staring out from behind his eyes, still has to live as if that were the case. But trying to account for what he believes is the truth about what he is, he faces a dilemma. To decide that what is most true about who and what you are as a person is that you are but a bundle of molecules driven solely by survival adaptations wired into your genes that then determines your very own thoughts about, well, everything, carries with it very serious and unavoidable implications. If you are simply reduced to physicality, then all about your consciousness and thought life, which includes what you decide is true about the universe, humanity, the virtues, right and wrong, life after death, etc., is not you deciding anything that's true or not true. There is no you that's an illusion. In fact, even the illusion of you as a self who thinks, decides, and from time to time reflects upon your own self-awareness is an illusion. It's all an illusion wrapped in a mirage and then repackaged as Mother Nature's next-level version of an augmented reality designed to ensure survival of our species. So might as well go along for the ride and act like it's important for me to make the right choices, right meaning best and or most true, about whether or not God exists, how to vote, what, who to identify as, who to identify and do life with, and then map out how to allocate my resources of time, energy, and possessions accordingly. And all of this has to do with me being convinced again with the illusion of a me that is convinced of anything, of what is most true and real about the universe and my place in it. In contrast, when a Christian bows before God, he does so with rationality firmly in place in light of his belief regarding what and who he is as a free moral agent made in the image of a thinking, feeling being able to make truth decisions that have consequences. But once again, if the non-believer is going to be absolutely consistent to his position, he knows that he exists but can't know anything else for certain. The obvious problem is that he can't live that way, and no one does. People cannot logically and rationally live in some cocoon of silence, which leads to a serious problem. He is immediately condemned in his intellect by simply being what he is, a rational person who thinks, 
feels, and longs for things and realities. He really does want certain things to be true. All people do. So what he truly is, a being made in the image of God as a unit of body and mind, has separated the unbelieving person from himself, and there is tension within. On the other hand, when a Christian looks to the personal creator from whom his very existence is possible, a bridge of answers and an overall framework of reality takes shape before him. Of course, not every answer to every question emerges, but those that are most fundamental are accounted for. Who? What am I? What is meaning? And what is my purpose? How am I to live in light of what is most true about the universe, including what happens around me today and after I die? The Christian position states two things, that God is there, this infinite personal God, and that you have been made in his image, so you are there. There is from your feet all the way to the infinite an answer that enables you to make the first move out of your intellectual cocoon. What God has revealed to us in the created order and spoken through the teachings of the Bible together form a unified and harmonized understanding, an ordered universe and living things, including us as those in his image who can think, feel, love, want, decide. That serves as a coherent framework for our existence and our experience, my existence and my personal experience. Now then, the wonder is that these answers do not end simply with an abstract academic understanding of being as in what it is to be to exist. They end in communion with the infinite personal reference point, the uncaused causer of it all, the God who is there. And that is tremendous. It's mind-boggling and awe-inspiring, or at least it should be. Then you can worship. This is where true worship is found, not in stained glass windows, candles, or altar pieces, not in ecstatic spiritual experiences, but in close relationship with the God who is there, relationship for eternity, and an authentic relationship now with the infinite personal God as Abba, Father, Papa. So addressing the question as to what I am as a human being, which is a fundamental issue in terms of any worldview, one can give several answers. Perhaps rational and moral is one of the most universally agreed upon things to say in the modern age. I am, I exist, but I exist specifically as rational and moral. I make decisions about what's right or just, what ought to be done, what is true about things, what the important things are about which to be true. These are all related to rationality and morality. They intersect. But then again, the naturalist is stuck with viewing decision-making as a product of impulses that aren't driven by a truly objective sense of morality and pure rationality, since those are but illusions. Who to vote for, marry, dance to, root for, or worship isn't a rational moral decision, but just the outworking of gene-driven survival adaptations. Does that seem unfair to reduce it down to that? I don't think so. Another issue that emerges in addressing what I am as a human being is that I am distinguished from other things that exist. First of all, I am separated from God because he is infinite and I am finite. 
He exists and I exist. He is a personal God and I have been created as a personal being in his image. But again, he is infinite and I am finite. I am also separated from the animals, the plants and other materials because they are not personal and I am personal. So when it comes to challenges of a psychological nature, it is good to ask, who am I? I am personal, I am rational, and I am moral. I can think abstractly and even think of myself thinking abstractly. On the side of my personality, I am like God, but on the other side, I am like animals and other living things because they too are finite. But I am separated from them because I am personal and they are not, at least in the sense that I am. Now, humanity's rebellion, the sin against God, is trying to exist outside the circle in which God made him to exist. He is trying to be what he is not. But as he tries to be what he is not, all the elements of what he is as a human being rise up against him. When a man stands before judgment and God judges him, Everything that man is has already risen up and judged him in the present life. Let's think of this in two areas. On the one hand, in the area of rationality of what makes the most sense of things. In this area, a person inclines, and especially in our own generation, to rely on a leap of absolute mysticism for the real answers, such as the problem of the unifying the whole of existence and the purpose of man. He says, on the one hand, existence doesn't have to be seen as rational, purposeful, and meaningful. Why not just accept it as irrational, as having no transcendent meaning or purpose? Yet he is conflicted within himself due to a nagging intuition, some deep understanding that accounting for the very existence of the kind of universe we inhabit as the kind of beings we are on the basis of purposelessness and meaninglessness not only rings hollow, but can be shown to come up lacking when subjected to scrutiny. How so? Let's start by agreeing to some basic ground rules for what makes for a truly plausible worldview. First, there are three tests the view must pass. Number one, its teachings cannot be self-contradictory. This we refer to as logical consistency. Number two, its teachings must connect to what we see in reality. This is called empirical adequacy. And three, its teachings must speak directly to how we live our lives. This is referred to as experiential relevance. Secondly, a worldview must address the following four questions. Number one, origins. Why does the universe exist? Where did it come from? Why do we exist as the kind of beings we are? Number two, meaning. What is life's meaning or purpose? Is there meaning or purpose beyond mere biology, functionality, adaptation, and survival? Number three, morality. How do we know right from wrong and what is the source? From where do ethics come? Number four, destiny. What happens after I die? And finally, there are five academic disciplines that must be employed to study a worldview. Theology, the study of God. Does God exist? Is there a God or gods? 
Number two, epistemology, the study of how we can know things. Number three, ethics, the study of morality, right from wrong. Number four, anthropology, the study of what and who humans are. And finally, metaphysics, the study of what is ultimately real, deals with the first principles of things, including abstract concepts such as being, substance, cause, identity, time, and space. So let's go back to the idea that the naturalist's view comes up lacking when subjected to careful examination. Following the above template to scrutinize a worldview necessarily involves an act of your will to apply critical thinking and logical analysis to an entire suite of issues, some of which are abstract, we use that word again, in nature, that also intersects with deep-seated feelings about these things. There is no such thing as an unbiased researcher, learner, examiner, etc., whether that be in the area of the sciences or the humanities. We all have certain biases and preconceived notions about what is most real, and we bring those to the table when we engage in any sort of examination. That's just a non-negotiable part of being a human. The undertaking itself must assume that you, the examiner, researcher, have the capacity to make determinations about what is true or not true, right thinking versus non-right thinking, about the nature of ultimate reality. And your answers, including your capacity to formulate an answer, not only means something to you, but also means that your determination merits more acceptance than another's. This might sound complicated, but at its core, it trades on the idea that notions of truth, meaning, and purpose are related. The very pursuit of knowledge and truth about the deeper things is universally experienced and has been for all of human history, including today, which leads some to theorize that evolution wired the penchant towards spirituality into our DNA as a survival adaptation. But even that idea begs for an answer as to why a naturally occurring, unguided process would somehow delude biomachines into believing things about themselves and the universe that is not only false, but patently absurd, at least to those biomachines who didn't get the memo that believing in the supernatural keeps our species on top. In contrast, Christianity provides a framework for the nature of ultimate reality that provides a logically consistent answer to why humans have always been and continue to be inclined toward the spiritual and transcendent. Our intuitions of and desire to connect with a higher reality are symptoms or echoes of that reality. There is something, or perhaps more specifically, someone, who is the grand cause behind what exists. And this encompasses both the how and why answers, even if we can't trace them out fully. So every person experiences a certain amount of tension within brought about by his existence as a rational, moral being possessing a sense of right, wrong, what ought and ought not be. In contrast to the animals and other living things, this rationality puts pressure on him. 
He stiff-arms God, refusing to even acknowledge his existence, and jumps screaming into the dark abyss of an impersonal universe wrestling with his own rationality, which demands a fundamental answer to the unity of what exists. The problem is that his cries for an answer are met by silence, and therefore he is torn within himself as he comes to grips with the utter futility of even trying to rationalize his own rationality, along with desires for things such as beauty, justice, liberty, love, and all the virtues, most of which cannot be plausibly attributed just to survival adaptations. Embracing the view that he is but a machine moving about on the basis of gene-driven brain states carries with it that there is no true self, no soul, within which love and the virtues reside and are experienced and then expressed into the world and others around him. So he must then accept all that implies, which is captured quite well by atheist Richard Dawkins when he writes of the universe as featuring, and I quote, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, unquote. That's a rather despairing reality, isn't it? Sounds so dark, so cynical, but it is inevitable and inescapable. No greater reality or transcendent ground of morality and virtue, it's all chalked up to man as highly developed primates making those determinations, which echoes the thought of the Greek philosopher Protagoras when he wrote, Man is the measure of all things. But what is needed is a transcendent rationality that is the source of the morals that enable humanity to flourish as the communal beings we are. Since man has rebelled against God and what he, God, created him to be, there is that internal separation, man separated from himself, what he really is. In the area of morality, we find exactly the same thing. Man cannot escape the fact of intuitions or the sense of a true right and wrong within himself, not just a sociological or mere feeling of morality, but true morality, true right and true wrong. And yet, beginning with himself, he cannot present absolute standards and cannot even keep the basic ones he has set up. So in the area of morality, as in rationality, trying to be what he is not, as he was made to be in relationship to God, he is crushed and damned by what he is. The separation in man from himself, which is experienced as conflict within his own conscience, are the result of revolt against God. In rebellion, not staying within the boundaries of what man is, but trying to place himself at the very center of the universe, man falls crushed within himself at every turn. At that point, he has two possibilities, and just two, if he is going to be truly rational. He can return to his place as a personal creature before a personal creator, a being created in the image of God to know him, love him, and live in accordance with his plan, or he can live as a rebel and descend into something lower than what is his intended place. 
So sinful man takes his place among the lower circles of existence. He moves down from his place as an image bearer of God into the lower existence being just another animal, a highly developed one at that. Therefore, man is divided against and from himself in every part of his nature. Think of it in any way you will. He is divided from himself in his rebellion, in rationality, in morality, in his thinking, in his acting, and in his feeling. By rebellion, he is divided from God by true moral guilt, and he feels the conflict because of what he is, by wanting to be God and not being God because he, as finite, cannot. He is condemned to internal conflict because he cannot hide among the animals trying to persist in his belief that a human being is nothing more than a co-location of atoms acting in accordance with gene-driven survival adaptations that emerged from the seething anarchy of the elementary particles and fundamental forces because he still bears the marks of God's image. That he cannot change. He is conflicted in both directions, simply by what God has made him. Every part of his nature speaks and calls out, I am a human being. No matter how dark the night of his soul is in this rebellion, there are voices that speak from every part of his nature. I am a human being. I am a man. I am a person. It is no wonder then that because of the fall, man is not only divided from other men, but is also divided from nature and from himself. At death, the body and soul will be separated for a time, but God has also put a witness in the present life in that the individual man in many ways is divided from his body even now. Man in the present life is divided in his personality. Since the fall, there is no truly healthy person in his body, and there is no completely balanced person psychologically. The result of the fall spoils us as a unit and in all our parts. At some level of consciousness, man cannot forget that he is man. He cannot totally deny his true rationality or his true morality. At this point, you would think that a person would cry out in desperation, seeking for a real answer in this life from the internal tension that arises because of his separation from himself. The answer is, yes, thank God that Jesus has made the way for me to be reconciled to God, to myself, and to my fellow man. But the fact remains that those who do not bow to Christ can still find some relief from the symptoms of man's separation of himself through the help of psychology and medical science, for there are real biochemical conditions affecting our neurology that can be addressed with various treatment protocols. But behind it all is an embracing of the notion that there is at least a sense of some sort of a purpose behind the universe that includes us as conscious, self-aware beings. That's why Carl Gustav Jung, the father of modern psychoanalysis, employed an approach that acted as if God is there but only pragmatically and Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor and author of Man's Search for Meaning, accepted a universal purpose behind the existence of the cosmos, though not offering a location or source for it all. To these men, these things are a piece of theater, but without their knowing it, it is in the direction of what actually is. 
In fact, he is there, a personal God who is holy in a moral sense. Not bowing, they do not acknowledge him, and yet pragmatically they find they must act as if he is there. At this point, we must make an important distinction. There is indeed purely psychological guilt in the poor things that we as human beings in our rebellion have become. But the Bible teaches that there is also real guilt, moral guilt before a holy God. It is not a matter only of psychological guilt. That's the distinction. When a man is broken in these areas, experiencing purely psychological guilt and the conviction of conscience that comes from being an image bearer of God who senses his true moral guilt, he is confused because he has the feelings of real guilt within himself, and yet he is told by modern thinkers that these are only guilt feelings. But he can never resolve these feelings because while they are merely guilt feelings, he also has true moral awareness and the feeling of true guilt. You can tell him a million times that there is no true guilt, but he still knows the guilt is there. Everyone experiences these rumblings deep within the conscience. I come now as a Christian. I call the specific sin, sin. I claim the finished work of Christ. I can say thank you to God and my conscience can be at rest. It's important to note that in this process, the real guilt is not overlooked. It is not swept under the rug. Real guilt is placed in a completely rational framework and it is met within the framework with intellect and feelings of morality meeting one another without any fracture between them. With all rationality in place and consciously in place, on the basis of the existence of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, my real guilt now is not overlooked but is accepted as my responsibility because of my own deliberately doing what I know to be wrong. Then it is reasonably, truly, and objectively dealt with in Christ's infinite substitutionary work on that cross. Now my conscience is stilled. The real guilt is gone, paid for completely and forever by Jesus Christ, and I know that anything that is left is my psychological guilt. This can be faced not in confusion, but to be understood as part of the misery of fallen humanity. To say that there is no real guilt is futile, for man as he is knows that there is real moral guilt. But when I know the real guilt is really met by Christ so that I do not need to fear to look at the basic questions deep inside myself, then I can see that the feeling of guilt that is left is psychological guilt and only that. This does not mean to say that psychological guilt is still not cruel. But I can now be open with it. I can see it for what it is. Without that awful confusion of real moral guilt coupled with psychological guilt. This also does not mean that we will be perfect in this life psychologically any more than we are physically. But thanks to the grace and mercy of God, now I can walk in true freedom and peace. Now there can be a substantial overcoming of the psychological division in the present life on the basis of Christ's finished work. It will not be perfect, but it can be real and substantial. Let's be clear about this. 
all men since the fall have had some psychological problems. It is utter nonsense, a romanticism that has nothing to do with biblical Christianity to say that a Christian never has a psychological problem. They differ in degree and they differ in kind, but everyone more or less has a problem psychologically. And dealing with this, too, is a part of the present aspect of the gospel and what Jesus, the Son of God, has made possible. We can't always sort out true guilt from psychological guilt. We are constantly brought face to face with the concept of the subconscious, which is a realization that man is more than that which is on the surface. Too often, even Christians can act as though there is nothing to us except that which is above the surface of the water. But sin has resulted in man being divided from himself, and so there is that which I am that is below the surface. We can again use the iceberg analogy, one-tenth above, nine-tenths below, in psychological terms, the unconscious or the subconscious. I am not to be surprised that there is something that I am that is deeper than that which is on the surface. We all have our problems. We all have our storms. But sometimes we experience Category 5 hurricanes. In the midst of the most severe that break over us, it is beautiful to know that we ourselves do not need in every case to sort out true guilt from psychological guilt. We are not living before a mechanical universe, and we are not living just before ourselves. We are living in relationship with the infinite personal God. The Heavenly Father is our Father. God knows the line between my true guilt and my guilt feelings. My part is to function in that which is above the surface and to ask God to help me to be honest and stay on the path moving in the proper direction bearing the fruit of one connected to Jesus Christ like a branch to the vine. My part is to cry out to God for the part of me that is above the surface and confess whatever I know is true guilt there, bringing it under the finished work of Jesus Christ and to experience a true sense of freedom as the Holy Spirit works within me. Understanding this is an important step in the healing of the separation of man from himself, which is what it is to live the Christian life, the life of true spirituality.